What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Another way to ask that question, of course, is what must I do to be saved? Um, It's not the first time we've heard that question. Uh, We heard that exact question back in Luke chapter 10 uh, when it was asked by the lawyer. We're going to hear, or if we study the book of Acts, or if you read the book of Acts, you'll uh, hear, read that question again in Acts chapter 2, asked by the crowd. And then you'll also uh, see it again when it's asked by a jailer in Acts chapter 16. So it's not just the rich ruler's question tonight. If you'll remember back in August when we looked at chapter 10, you'll know that I said at that time it's really man's default position. Um, It's kind of who we are. It's our natural inclination to ask this question because eternity's been set in our hearts. And that's not my opinion, that's Solomon's wisdom. So we know uh, that there is something beyond uh, this life. We instinctively know that there is more than just this physical life. There is something to come. But somehow, in some way, we have it in our minds that whatever's to come, that eternal life that is, not whatever, but that eternal life that is to come is something that we can earn or merit, uh, something that we can Uh, We have the ability to to grasp. We can justify ourselves and therefore earn the right, or we we can deserve based upon our effort to experience that eternal life. So, our, our natural fallen position is to believe that salvation is obtainable through our own self righteousness. It must be achieved by our performance. It's merit-based, and, and somehow that eternal future is in our hands. It's in our grasp. It's, in, it's within our power and under our control to gain it. And we believe that. If you remember, I've, I've said this before, but we believe that because everything in life points us in that direction. From the time we're little and we, we earn candy by being good in the store. Or when we go to school and we earn certificates for good behavior, we lose recess time for bad behavior. Or we get good grades, right? We get A's and B's for, for good grades. Or we earn first chair in the band. Or we earn not only a spot on the team, but playing time based upon our performance. We earn scholarships based on how well we test. And that moves into adulthood, right? In the marketplace, we we earn year-end performance bonuses and we earn those merit-based promotions. And it's, it's deeply entrenched even in the world religions. Islam has its five pillars. Buddhism has its eightfold path. Hinduism has its karma. Judaism has the law. Catholicism and Mormonism has their own works-based system. And so there's really only one thing holding us back, and that's 
We, we need to know that one thing, just that exact thing. If we could just know what that is, we do it, whether we like it or not, to, to earn that salvation that we're longing for. Because in the end, I mean, I know there's, I know there's stuff out there about, you know, some people are relationship-oriented and some people are task-oriented, but really, when it's all said and done, we're all task-oriented. We're all goal-oriented. We all love our to-do lists. And we love ticking those things off. We love it when we accomplish our task. We love it when we meet a goal. We love it when we mark that last thing off the to-do list or really any of those things. We consider it a a good day when we get one of those things off our to-do lists. And we really like it when other people notice it and reward us for a job well done. But what shall I do to... uh, to earn eternal life, or what shall I do to inherit eternal life, or what must I do to be saved is not the only question asked in the text tonight. There's also another question. The second question is, who can be saved? There's also a third question, though it's not specifically in the text like the other two, but it, it is derived from the text. And that question is, how do we not hinder our children? So those are the three questions. What what must we do to inherit eternal life? Or what must we do to be saved? Who can be saved? And how do we not hinder our children? Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth of the gospel Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us, and then come along and comfort us and encourage us, refresh us. I'm weak and needy to this task to which you've called me, so I ask for you to grant me grace, to support me, to strengthen me, to fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you and for the church this evening. My desire is to be a pure channel of your grace. May that be so, and I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for His sake and for His church. Amen. And amen. Well, Luke says that the man was a ruler. Probably, uh, it probably means that he was a leader among the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were simply a group of upper-class wealthy aristocrats who involved themselves Uh, In religious and political endeavors, they were very powerful and influential in those particular areas. Uh, They weren't as highly as uh, highly as highly esteemed as Pharisees um, because they had this tendency to be more politically motivated than, of course, religiously involved, and therefore they tended to cater more to Rome than the Jews that they were supposed to be serving. And this ruler, in true politician form, begins this dialogue with Jesus with a little flattery. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, of course, doesn't pass up this teachable moment with this ruler and in true Jesus fashion, asks a question in return. He said, why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God. And in doing so, he did a couple of things simultaneously, I believe. First, he called the ruler out for his flattery. He wasn't going to let him slide. And so he pushed him, and he pushed him in regard to who he really was. In other words, he said, look, no one is good except God. So, if you're calling me good, you need to stop and think about what it is you're saying about me, and you need to determine whether you believe it or not. Because if you don't believe it, you can save your flattery. But if you do, kudos to you. The second thing he does is he sets the ruler up for this exchange that's about to take place. He says, before we go any further, we need to get one thing straight, and that is nobody but God is good. And because that's true, you need to keep that in the forefront of your mind as I, as I answer your question. And you need to keep that in the forefront of your mind and take time before you respond to what I'm about to say, which, of course, he doesn't do. And from there, Jesus addressed the question specifically. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Another way to put it would be, you know the law, right? And rather than take Jesus' advice and consider what he just said, and rather than just to answer in the affirmative, the ruler takes it a step farther and as Jesus knew he would, and answers very arrogantly, of course, I know the law. Those are the seventh, sixth, eighth, ninth, and fifth commandments. I've always loved my neighbor. I've been keeping these commandments my whole life. Right, he's, looking, he's looking for something more. That was too easy. Right, this, was, this wasn't as challenging as he was hoping it would be. This was undergraduate level 101 stuff. He wanted graduate level 501 stuff, and Jesus wasn't giving it to him. And of course, our first response is, of course, to scowl a little bit, is it not? And we think or say something like, the audacity, what a fool. How could anyone think they've kept the law? Or worse, we shake our heads, or we shake our fingers in contempt and prideful disgust, as if we would ever, ever say anything like that about ourselves. And we know better, right? It's because we know better that we, we look the way we do at other people. We know what questions 123 through 148 of the larger catechism say about the law, the commandments. We know that the commandments carry both prohibitions and, and as well as permissions. The commandments talk about sins that are forbidden or the, those things that we aren't to do, but they also talk about the required duties that we have, the things that we are to do. And they also cover more than just our actions. They cover our, our thoughts and our imaginations and our words. 
as well as our attitudes. Right? And we know better because we agree with question 149 that says, is any man able to perfectly keep the commandments of God? We know the answer. No, no one is able, no one at all, either of himself or by any grace received in this life, to perfectly keep the commandments of God. But we do daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And we know that question 150 reminds us that some sins are more heinous than others, but Question 151 keeps before us the truth of the fact that every sin, even the least of them, deserves judgment, wrath, and the curse of God. All that to say is we have all of that. We know all of that, so it'd be a good idea for us to keep our fingers of contempt in our pockets. Our knowledge of the Scripture shouldn't cause causes contempt for others. As we learned last week, our, our knowledge should cause us to humble ourselves in front of others. We must know both the Scriptures and ourselves and respond appropriately. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, He said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't push back or try to convince this young ruler that he was wrong regarding commandments 5 to 9. He simply uses the first commandment to expose his heart. In the words of Dale Davis, he basically says if he sells all, he'll still have Jesus. It's as if Jesus said, I will be enough for you. But the ruler's sadness lets lets us know that when it came to his money, everything and everyone, including God, took a back seat. He was an idolater. And he may have loved God, but he didn't love God as much as his wealth. He loved his wealth more. Even if he had passed the love your neighbor test, which he didn't, but even if he did, he definitely didn't pass the love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Test without qualification. And unfortunately, as we've said several times since we've... um, Over these last several chapters, as Jesus has been making His way to Jerusalem, His problem, like so many, was not that He was wealthy. It's not that He had money and possessions. That wasn't the issue. The issue was His money and possessions had Him. They had a grip upon Him. For Him, Jesus was not enough. And even tonight, as we've had to ask, ask ourselves several times over these last few weeks, we need to ask ourselves again tonight, is Jesus enough? And of course, we know He is. He is whether we believe Him to be or not. He is. And so, we have to ask ourselves even more pointedly, do we believe He is enough? Because He is. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 24. 
Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, apologized for making him feel bad. It's not what it says. Um, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, backed off and encouraged him to think of all the good things that he had done. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, changed the subject to save the ruler any embarrassment. No, seeing that he had become sad, he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He matter-of-factly, as he always does, told him that if he's going to trust in his own self-righteousness, if he is going to cling to his wealth, the kingdom of God would be off-limits to him. He was sticking to the same story that he had been sharing with others on this journey to Jerusalem, no matter who it was, no matter what town he was in, or how they might have responded. He says, the kingdom of God is not earned or merited, and you can't love both God and money. And the illustration he gives doesn't speak to the difficulty, it speaks to the impossibility. A 700-pound, nine-foot animal is not going to fit through an eye of a needle that is only a few millimeters long or wide. It can't happen. Again, in the words of Dale Davis, Jesus is insensitive here. He exposes the man's idolatry and gives no palliative care. He makes him very sad and leaves him that way, and yet making him sad was a gift. If for once he could see himself as he was, there might be hope. Jesus didn't pamper the man's self-image. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to consider this example that Jesus leaves for us here tonight there are times when insensitivity is a gift, and there is time when palliative care or the seeking to minimize the pain and the burden and the stress and consequences of sin without dealing with sin itself is detrimental to the individual. There are times when we refrain from speaking the truth because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. There are times that we are we care more about saving their feelings and losing their souls than hurting their feelings and saving their souls. And to be clear, I'm not saying we need to be harsh. We don't need to be harsh or offensive or derogatory or absent of empathy and sympathy. But I am saying that with humility and gentleness and love and grace, we should confront sin, we should draw boundaries, we should identify that which is illogical and irrational, uh, we should uh, point out inconsistencies and fallacies. And we should be comfortable, well, now we can be uncomfortable, but we need to be willing for people to experience sadness, guilt, and even shame when confronted. And we should also be quick to provide the answer to that sadness, 
guilt, and shame, which is the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only took on our sin, but took on our sadness, guilt, and shame. Sadness, guilt, and shame should be felt and experienced. They are, in fact, gifts of grace, but they should not be carried anywhere but to the cross of Christ. Well, they will find the cleansing blood of our Savior, and we are to help carry the load, carry those things there for those around us. Which brings us to the second question, because you see, the the ruler wasn't the only one who Jesus made sad and uncomfortable. There are others listening on, and the crowd who was listening, they hear the exchange taking place, and they begin to squirm themselves. They were apparently a health and wealth and prosperity gospel group. They believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing, so this, this man had what he had because he was a good guy and had been keeping the law, and so God had His hand upon him. So when they heard Jesus speak of the impossibility of him entering the kingdom of heaven due to his trust in himself and his love for his wealth, they began to panic. In verse 26, it says, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Right? If he can't, if he can't be saved, if this guy whom God has blessed can't be saved and enter the kingdom, then then who can? Who has a chance? What chance do we have now if, if he doesn't? If this guy who has it all together and he's experiencing his best life now, if he can't get in and enter, what hope do we have? Jesus, it sounds like you're you're barring the doors to everybody. And, And we don't like that. And his response to them is just as matter of fact as his response to the ruler, what is impossible with man is possible with God. His point, as it has been, right, it is impossible, impossible for man to earn or merit or even force his way even to the, into the kingdom. He can't do it by himself. It is impossible for anyone to save themselves. It's impossible because man is incapable. The only hope for entrance into the kingdom, the only hope for salvation is God himself. God alone has the power to change the hearts of men. God alone has the power to break the chains of sin. God alone has the power to provide the forgiveness that we need and the holiness that we lack and do not possess. God alone has the power to grant us the gifts of repentance and faith. So in the end, there's really hopelessness, but there's also hopefulness in His response. The hopelessness comes when when we rest in our stuff for our satisfaction, or in ourselves for our salvation. Our hopelessness comes when we believe that we can and are able to secure our entrance into the kingdom. 
and to do so on our own through our work. But the hopefulness comes when we rest in Christ for both our satisfaction and our salvation. Our hopefulness comes when we believe that it's Christ who has secured our entrance into the kingdom through His work on our behalf. So the answer to the question, who can be saved, is really this, those who receive it, not those who earn it. And that sends us back to the first of our passage that we skipped over when we began. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. If we turn that in and made it a positive statement rather than a negative statement, it says, whoever receives the kingdom of God like a child shall enter it. Luke masterfully, in my opinion, Luke masterfully places this example between the Pharisee that we saw last week and this ruler that we encounter and, and, and are interacting with this week to stress the point that, again, that the kingdom is not gained, our salvation is not obtained with close-fisted hands of determination and control. The kingdom and our salvation is received with open hands of relinquishment and surrender. We have to admit that when it comes to the kingdom, we are helpless and dependent, as helpless and dependent as children. Children, particularly infants, the word there in verse 15, right? Infants cannot feed themselves. Infants cannot dress themselves. They cannot care for themselves in any way. And parents must take care of them for several years, take care of their daily needs for, for many, many years. They would not survive if they were left to fend for themselves in any way whatsoever. They must simply receive, and they, and they simply receive what's offered. They put on what's given. And Philip Ryken says, this is how we must come to God. This is how we must come to God if we would ever come into His kingdom. To enter, we need to receive. We must make a declaration of our dependence, he says, offering God nothing except our need and hungrily receiving the grace He gives to helpless sinners. This is why we often sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to Thee for grace. Our salvation is received. So let me ask a couple of questions. Do you sometimes, have you ever, and do you sometimes doubt that God could or would ever save a person like you? Have you ever or do you ever doubt whether God could or would ever save a family member or a friend of yours? Please rest assured that what is impossible with man is possible with God. He is the God of the possible. He can save the vilest of sinners. He can change the hardest of hearts. 
He can cleanse the filthiest of minds. No one is out of His reach. No one. The gospel is not only the truth to be believed for salvation, the gospel is the power unto salvation. Our salvation is in the hands of the Lord. So there's always hope. There's always hope, and it is found in Christ alone. Now, as I mentioned when we began, the first two questions are obvious. They're right there in the text. We don't have to search for them. Uh, the third, however, is not, but it's a question that just that jumped out at me as I began looking at this passage and studying this passage this week, and it jumped out repetitively. Look at verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God doesn't just belong to those who are like children and admit their helplessness and dependence upon Him. The kingdom of God belongs to children. Boys and girls, hear me. Hear me when I say to you, the kingdom of God belongs to you. In Acts 2, that's why Peter says the promise is for you and your children. And we don't really know, that. I mean, everybody has their ideas or thoughts or opinions regarding why the disciples jump in and, and, and begin to rebuke the parents for bringing their children to Jesus. And while we really don't know why they rebuked them, we do know that Jesus didn't like it and stopped them. He put an end to it. He said, do not hinder them. Let them come to me. And the question that kept coming to my mind, as you can imagine, all week was, how do we hinder others? How do we hinder others, particularly our children, from coming to Jesus? But by the end of the week, the question was different. It was very simply, how do we not hinder our children from coming to Jesus? And you'll notice the outline in the back of your bulletin. We printed the bulletin around Thursday, and so that was kind of midstream between two questions. So the question actually is, how do we not hinder our children from coming to Jesus? And so I want to take a couple of minutes as we wrap up tonight with a little help from Joel Beakey in his book, Bringing the Gospel to Covenant Children. And I want to answer this question, how do we not hinder our children? in coming to Jesus. We do so by believing that God can convert them. Again, all things are possible with God. We do so by bringing them to receive the sign of baptism and by keeping what it signifies and seals before them. We do so by exercising wisdom 
and not forcing premature professions of faith on the one hand or postponing professions of faith, treating them like adults and expecting too much for them on the other. We do so by taking advantage of teachable moments and bringing the gospel to bear in the ordinariness. It is a word. I looked it up. The ordinariness of life. We do so by allowing them to ask questions and faithfully providing them with biblical answers. We do so by refraining from living inconsistent and impure lives. And we do so by maintaining a proper estimation of the covenant relationship that they're in that is confirmed in their baptism. And that includes several things. Things that we are to do continually. We're to affirm that they must be born again. Continually. We must point them to Jesus and His sacrifice as the only way to salvation. Continually. We must model and encourage a lifestyle of ongoing repentance of sin and faith in Christ and obedience to God continually. We're to shepherd them toward a holiness of heart as well as a holiness of life continually. We're to instruct them in the faith once for all handed down to the saints continually. We're to make diligent use of the simple means of grace, of words, sacrament, and prayer continually. We're to reinforce the importance of a vibrant covenant community involvement in both worship and in day-to-day life continually. We're to pray for and plead for God to baptize them with the Holy Spirit and grant them regeneration, repentance, and faith continually. We're to remind them that God is their God, and they are a part of the people of God, because God has promised that it is so, and we're to do that continually. So, brothers and sisters, may we continually, may we continually come to Christ as the children of God that we are. And may we not hinder our little ones, or anyone else for that matter, from coming to Him as well. He's the only hope for the world. Let's pray. Well, gracious Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the Word with faith and love? Enable us to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached this evening, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.